How many of you grew up with uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books? Anybody? Anybody remember what looked like this? Uh, they were Choose Your Own Adventure books. I think we can put it on the whole screen. And they, you're the star of the story. And what you do is you would choose from 26, 52, 48 different possibilities. And the way it would work is you would read a little bit and you're the hero of the story and, and you get to a place and at the bottom of the page it would say, if you should go down the coal mine, go to page 52. Or if you wanna go back to the saloon and talk to the prospector, turn to page 47. And you would choose your own adventure and you would find kind of what's going to, in all these possibilities, I had all, I had so many of these books, I, I, I loved it. Well, as we conclude today, what has been 500 days in the making, it's not been every Sunday, but starting in February of 2020, uh, I began the series of Shadow King and it was uh, overshadowed by something, I don't know if you guys heard, there was like a pandemic thing that happened and is happening. It was overshadowed by uh, COVID and the shutdown and several weeks of joining online. And so we pushed pause on that series. We brought it back this year. And, and now we are coming to a close of what has been some of my um, most favorite time together so far in, in, in preaching, because I believe it's so applicable. The life of David, the saga of David, the biopic of his life has been so applicable to us. And today it's hard to kind of tie up all the loose ends. If you've ever watched a television series and you're there at the series finale and you wanna know what happened here and what happened there and what's gonna happen with this person and, and, and it's really hard to make the whole audience happy because they wanna know everything and you got an, a, an hour for the, for, the, for the television show. Here you've only got five hours and, and um, just kidding, it'll be less than that, a little bit. And, and so it's hard for me to, it's like, man, as I've said before, I feel like a mosquito at a nude beach I know exactly what to do today. I just don't know where to start. And so here's where we're going to start today on choose your own final adventure for the life, legacy, leadership, lust, loss, and heart of King David. We're going to talk about three different adventures, three different stories that come from three different books. David's life is so massive that one book couldn't cover it. Two books couldn't cover it. Five books couldn't cover it. So First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles have David uh, whittled all the way through them. Three different stories from three different books. Three um, that have somewhat of an ending to it, with one final verdict. We're going to have the gavel come down on David today. We're going to hear the verdict of David's life: innocent or guilty. So let's jump in. If you're taking notes, I invite you to open your worship guide and you can fill in the blanks there or Timber Creek app or everybody on the Timber Creek Church online platform. You can see it right there. If you don't like taking notes, that's okay. Just write down the words and you'll be fine. We go to choose your adventure number one and I've entitled this piece, Falling Into the hands. You want to make sure that, that certain things, uh, from military documents to, to um, uh, weaponry to you, you, who knows what, that it does to your diary, that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And we see something falling into hands at this last chapter of 2 Samuel as David's life in the book of Samuel comes to a close. Here's where we see David. 
David was conscience stricken. The King James Version says he was, his heart condemned him. The New King James says he was smote in his heart. Smote, smittenish, whatnot, okay? He was struck in the heart, as Bon Jovi would say, shot through the heart. That's where David was. He was conscience stricken. He felt terrible. Here's what he says to God. Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. He's already done some dumb stuff. And now he's at it again. Anybody ever been there? Yes, you have. Don't lie. Just ask your spouse. Yes, you've done some foolish things. I know what did he do to be conscience stricken, to be struck in the heart, to be, to be overwhelmed with guilt? What did he do? You back up the clock to nine months earlier. And we see in the very same chapter what David has done. We go to verse 2 and the king, David, said to Joab and the army commanders. Remember, Joab is, is David's right-hand man. If David is Wyatt Earp, Joab is Doc Holliday. If David is Batman, then, 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 then Joab is not Robin. He is like the Joker on steroids. Like He's like, nah, bloodthirsty. Joab is a mean dude. Joab and the commanders with him. This is what the king said. Here's what I want you to do, guys. They show up into the throne room. I want you to go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. That's, that's geography. And I want you to enroll the fighting men. Take a census of the military. So that I may know how many there are. <laughs> Makes sense. I want you to count them because we haven't counted them. I want to know how many people we got. Sound good? Sound good. You want to make sure you've counted. You don't want a penalty of too many people on the field. Counting counts. Well, Joab, his right-hand man, he replied to the king, and he's kind of like, <laughs> uh, sure, sure, okay, 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 okay. He says, may, may the Lord your God multiply the troops 100 times over, and may the eyes of my Lord, the king, see it. Like, I, I don't want to, like, get up in your business, but this is code for I'm about to get up in your business. I mean, may, may everything be all good, but why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? Why do you want to do this? What's the, re what's the purpose? And Joab knows why he's asking it. He's not asking, this seems to be senseless to take this census. He's saying, you and I both know this is something we, we shouldn't do. We'll talk about that in a moment. King doesn't matter. He overrode Joab. He overruled him. And so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. So we fast forward back up to nine months later, and they come back. There was, it took nine months. There was no Google Doc to share across the interwebs. And they find that there are not only 1.3 million in the military, but these are 1.3 million men who can fight with a sword in their hand. Just remember the sword in their hand. 1.3 million. And the moment the words come off the lips of Joab and his army commanders, the Bible says David was conscience stricken. He realized what he had just done. David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And this is what he said to the Lord 
I've sinned against you greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. It used to be Nathan the prophet who years earlier had come to, to David when he'd had the affair with Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, killed to kind of cover up the whole deal. Nathan has kind of gone a little bit into the sidelines, into retirement, and Gad from Boston, Gad, to talk about Gad, it's a joke, he's one from Boston, he was from wherever, and, and Gad the prophet, David Seer, here's what, here's what Gad says. Gad comes to David and says, hey, you said you feel bad about it, you, you, you need to repent. This is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. This is like the price is wrong. <laughs> three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. God is giving David three doors. And Gad says, okay, behind door number one, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Pause. Come on you, three years of famine in your land. David's the one that has done something wrong here but the whole city is gonna suffer for it. The whole nation is gonna suffer for it. Moms and dads, hear me. Just understand, you don't sin in a vacuum. You don't live life untouched with everybody else. It's just me. I'm not hurting anybody. Let me just live my life. Your life is meant to overlap with others. Your life overlaps. You don't sin in a vacuum. And the way you live and the way you lead can have and will have a effect, positively, negatively, spiritually, destructively on those around you. It will. And David, three years of famine in the land, or here's the next option, what's behind door number two? It's our second option. It's not a brand new car. It's three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you. So it's either starve to death and no water, because no water means no crops, no crops means no food, or all of your enemies from the north, south, east, and west are gonna pursue you. You're gonna be on constant retreat fleeing from them. Or, door number three, three days of plague in your land. Three days of plague. Three years, three months, three days. And then Gad kind of steps back and crosses his, shoulder, his, his arms and says, now then, think it over and decide. <laughs> I got all day. Think it over. Decide. So, question today, if you're taking notes. Question today, here we go. Is it just me? Is it just me? Or would you ask the question too? What's so wrong with counting? Like all he wanted to do was count them in. Why is God so strict? I don't get it. I don't understand it. Even one of the 66 books of the Bible is named Numbers. In the book of Numbers itself, God says to Moses, another leader, count the men. So it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? However, when it came to the people of Israel wanting a king, part of what God said, if you're going to have a king, here's what I don't want you to do. You don't count your people because the moment you start relying on your resources, you'll stop relying on me. So why is counting so wrong 
in this story. There's two reasons. Here's, here's the primary overarching reason, and then we'll give you a more specific reason. Here's the, here's the primary reason, and we've heard it before. You've heard it before. It's even a primary reason that you have used before. You've said this before. And it comes back down to this. Because God said so. The primary reason why David ought not to count the men, the reason why Joab was saying, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more. <laughs> You're thinking what I'm thinking. Why are you doing this? And David overruled him. David knew that God said don't count. But David somehow began to slide down the same slippery slope as Saul. Oh, I like that. It was sl same slippery slope as Saul. Selling seashells by the seashore. He's on slippery slope with Saul. Saul couldn't rely on God, had to rely on his own muscle, had to rely on the hand. There's something in all kinds of fairy tales, in all kinds of medieval stories. It's the hand of the king. It represents power. It represents authority. They didn't just count men. They counted men that had hands that could hold the sword that represented the power of the king bid, doing his bidding on the battlefield against his enemies. And it had nothing to do with the ark of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the provision of God, David was going down a slippery slope to say, I know God said, but I'm going to do it myself. How crazy and arrogant of David, but you and I do it all the time, all the time with God. See, because God said so should be enough. Many times it's not for Christians. You may want to write this down. Most Christians have never really obeyed God. What? Most Christians, yeah. They've never really obeyed God. They've just agreed with him. See, true obedience from your children is not when you ask them to do something and they agree with you about it and then they do it. They are doing it out of the benefit they get because they already agree with you. So when you say to your children, I'm thinking about raising your allowance, they're gonna say, I will obey you on that. Why? Because they agree with you on that. And I want you to know that the Bible is full of things that if you dive in deep enough and you really choose to live by it, at some point, God's going to say so and you're not going to like it. God saying so has to be enough for the Christ follower. God saying, here's the way I want it. But even going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the first humans that ever lived, that God designed himself. Can I just give you some encouragement, parents? If you feel like less of a parent because your kids have gone off the deep end, God only created two humans and then the rest of the creation was all up to us. Both of those humans failed. Your failure, your kids not following the path that you are setting out for them doesn't mean you're a terrible parent. They have to choose for themselves just like Adam and Eve did. Because there's gonna come a time where your kids don't agree with you and it's either gonna have to be obedience 
because they're surrendered to the will of their parent or they're gonna push back and it's gonna happen and it happens in my life, it happens in my kid's life, it happens with my spouse. Can you believe that she don't agree with every single thing I say? And Adam and Eve, they see the fruit and there's nothing, it's not like there's a worm, it's not like there's a skeleton, you know, a tattooed on the, on the fruit. It's not like there's bugs and maggots all crawling around and God says, don't eat that fruit. No, 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 it looks good. It seems good. The enemy in the form of a serpent says, uh, serpent says I mean, oh, did God really say you can't? I mean, it's, well, he just doesn't want you to be as smart as him. And in that moment, it's not about the fruit being poisonous. They could have carved off a little piece and fed it to a bunny and watched for a little bit and see if the bunny fell over or started puking or something. But instead, they pluck it off. They take the bite because they didn't agree with God. Because they didn't agree, they didn't obey. Can your relationship with God stand when you don't agree with him? That's real obedience. So God says, and here's what we do. We love to serve God as long as everything is good. But if he ever says anything that interferes with my choice, my life, my money, my sexuality, my marriage, my decisions, my, what I think is integrity and what other people think, what God says, anything that I choose, I, I end up doing the same thing. It's not about counting men. It, it's about God just said, don't do it. And that ought to be enough. It ought to be enough but it just shows the depravity of our own hearts. Don't make sense to me. So that's the first thing. But the second thing, what's so wrong with counting? It's the specific reason, and it's this. For you and me, and Adam and Eve, and David, and Jeremy, and Janet, the incredibly seductive power of power. We're guilty of taking matters into our own hands, into our own intellect, into our own control. And the Bible says, like I said, something we don't like, and we push back on the Bible, and then we start coming up with reasons to dilute the power of the Bible. And we say, oh, yeah, but isn't that just author? Or isn't that just, or today, you know, guys, 2,000 years ago. I mean, yeah, okay, it's the moral compass. And what we do is we set a case, and what we do is we dumb down God to our agreeability. We, we dumb down God. To make sense. For those of us in the room, and I will include myself in this, there are times that I have struggled and can struggle. There are moments that I will tell you the truth. Moments where something hits me and I say, mm, is this real? Is this real? Is this real? This whole God thing, is this real? And if I'm not anchored in the truth of his word, if I'm not having personal time with him, it wouldn't surprise me if you feel that way too sometimes. Is this real? And so what we do is we, we begin to dumb down God to our level. He's ultimately omnipotent. He is infinite in his wisdom. If he's infinite in wisdom and you've got some wisdom, can I tell you that as much wisdom as you got, it's still dumb compared to infinite wisdom? Like as smart as you are, okay, 4.0, whatever, summa cum laude, or <laughs> graduated, thank the laude, <laughs> whatever it is, whatever it is, it's nothing compared to the infinite wisdom of God. So, so can I tell you, for those of you that want to make sense of the world, you're, and, and, and everything's got to fit the formula, 
Thou shalt not fit God into an Excel sheet. It's not going to fit. There's going to be times where someone you love, the life doesn't line up with the word of God and you're there and you struggle and you hurt and you don't get it. And you say, what's going on? And, and, and you, you can't explain it away. Or there's a sickness. Your child is sick and God's not healing them the way you want them to be, be healed. And you're saying, God, I thought you were the healer. You cannot excel sheet God because his ways are higher but you can know him personally. So what we have to do is not try to fit him into the Excel sheet. It's that we have to surrender into his will with obedience when we don't agree. We gotta recalibrate our self-confidence in our own intellect and put our confidence, lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways yield to him. That's what we gotta do. So David was conscience stricken. I didn't agree with him and I should have. I didn't obey, and I should have. So, Christian maturity isn't measured by you needing to repent less. Go back one. Let's read that again. David was conscious stricken. Another, like I said, he was condemned in his heart. He felt, he felt conviction. Do you remember in the story of David and Bathsheba, um, he covers up the affair. He tries to get Uriah drunk to go sleep with his wife. Uh, with, with Uriah's wife, he then, that doesn't happen. So another days later, he sends a telegram over to the military. Uriah goes on the front line, kills Uriah, s- quietly brings in Bathsheba after a time of mourning. So it kind of stays under wraps, but the National Enquirer gets news. It's actually not the National Enquirer. It's actually God himself that tells Nathan, the prophet, and he goes in and says, you took Uriah's only lamb. How could you do that? And David in that moment is conscience stricken. And he says, I've sinned before the Lord in that moment. But it took God sending another person to tell him. In this moment, God doesn't have to send someone to tell him. David is learning from his mistakes. Oh, I'm so glad that we get to learn. I reserve the right to learn from my mistakes, okay? And you should too. But look, as we say again, Christian maturity isn't measured by you needing to repent less. The, the closer you get to Christ and the, the more you grow up in Christ or you think the more you grow up in church, two major differences growing up in church and growing up in Christ. Two major differences. One's on the outside, one's on the inside, okay? If you think that I'm becoming a better Christian so I shouldn't struggle anymore or I should be more perfect or I shouldn't have to repent as much, you're measuring it in the wrong way. Christian maturity isn't about you repenting less and less. The more mature you are in Christ, the faster you want to repent. It's about the speed of it. It's about, uh uh-oh. It's about recognizing it. It's about recalibrating. It's about repenting and changing your mind. The word repentance isn't some crazy holy word. It just means change your mind, turn the other direction, and repent. And the faster you want to repent, the more mature you are in Christ because you're going to fail even in maturity. David is mature. He's seen more than you've seen. He's seen in his 70 years, eight lifetimes. And he still falls short. The more mature you are in Christ, the faster you want to repent. So these options are three years of famine, three months of fleeing the enemies, three days of plague. Which one would you choose if you had to choose one? Which one would you choose, you think? Would you go for, you know, the boils? Would you go for galloping 
with 190 heart rate away from the Philistines for the next three months? Would you go with no food? What would you do? So here's what David does. David says, I'm in deep distress. <laughs> yeah. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. Fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But here's what he says. But do not let me fall into human hands. Because David knows his own hand is human, their hand is human, and there's nothing stopping that human hand from wanting to take all the power they possibly can. So he said, God, instead of this relying on other humans, you, you just be God. And whether it be a, a medical thing, health thing, or it be a food, water thing, you decide, God. And sure enough, God says, okay, three days of plague. This is hard to read. 70,000 people in the next three days in Jerusalem die because David raised his hand as the ultimate power and counted and God said no if you want to boil God down to your level you can say things like what kind of loving God would do that but that's you boiling him down to your level of understanding humanity and life and value and all this it, it's it's a it's 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 a jagged illustration, but let me give it to you this way. You might say, how could a loving God like that do that to 70,000 of his people that he says he loves? Well, I think you and I say, hey, we, we want to love God and love people. But let me just use myself as an example. If I walked into my house and someone had broken in and they were violating one of my children or my wife, I love you and I love Jesus, uh, but I'm gonna kill somebody. Now, would you say, how could a loving pastor do something like that? No, you would probably give me high fives. I'm not for sure if that would be the appropriate response. In fact, it wouldn't be. But I would, I would, I would die for my children and my spouse, and I, I, would, I, I think I have the capacity to kill for them. I think I have the capacity to defend my family like that. You wouldn't call me a terrible dad if I defended my family. Just understand in the scope of humanity and creation and God of the cosmos, he's the ultimate father. This is all his. How he defends it, how he uses it, how he gives it, and how he takes it away, he's God. And part of our addiction to power is wanting to make sense and God to run by our rules. And he's just bigger than that than you. He's bigger than you on that. So here's what David does. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. I'm the shepherd. Kill me. Don't kill the sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family, not on these 70,000. And I want you to see the picture. He sees the angel striking them down. The angel is standing up the mountain from Jerusalem. And David sees through. It's kind of like the, the, um, the big statue of Jesus in Rio 
the big open-handed statue of Jesus? Well, there's this supernatural moment where David sees through the window and sees a mighty angel standing up the mountain and, and, and basically like, I mean, just, just, just the plague is just hitting people, just hitting people and killing people. Jews dead in the creek. And all of a sudden, David says, whoa, 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 don't do this. Do this to, do this to me. And so what, the, what God says through Gad, go up to that place and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana. Everybody say Arana. On Arana the Jebusite. The threshing floor was a, was a plateau area where you would separate the wheat from the chaff and make sure you get the good grain and throw away the stock. And there he goes up the mountain, up away from Jerusalem, overlooking Jerusalem, and he sacrifices cattle. And David built an altar to the Lord there, sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. God answered his prayer, but something had to die. So it wasn't going to be any more the sheep, and it wasn't going to be the shepherd but God provided through the cattle, the blood covered the, the sin of David and covered the sin of the nation, and it's a fresh start. That's how 2 Samuel, the whole book ends. David sacrificing because he messed up royally. And this is the man that God said, he's after my heart? Hmm, adventure number two. We now go from 2 Samuel chapter 24 to the next book of the Bible, it's 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, we fast forward several years, David is, is on his deathbed. The Bible says King David was very old. He could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. He's dying. He's dying. So his attendants said to him, hey, 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 David, king, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. And she can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king, may keep warm. Some of you older people are like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Medieval times, everybody. You got electric blankets, okay? So here's what they did. They searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman. I mean, he is the king and, you know, found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no sexual relationships with her. Now, why? Like, why, why even tell us all this? TMI. Why don't you just get to the story, okay, author? Here's why. Here's why. The author is wanting to show you just how feeble and just how out of power, not, not just in health, but in virility, in drive, that David, who had many mistresses and a few wives, the David we know would not just hang out. But what we see is he's old and he's dying and he's tired and he has no strength left. And because of his situation, we get the next scripture. Adonijah, one of his sons, he had 20 sons and one daughter. Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, as we said last week, must have been a super sexy woman with that name, put himself forward 
Adonijah puts himself forward and said, I'm going to be king. David's done. The hand needs to come to me. Hand me the crown. Let's go. I'm going to be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. So he's kind of doing this whole parade. Like, I'm king now. I'm king now. Isn't it interesting? The more you say something, maybe the more people think it's true. Well, that's exactly what he's doing. He's tweeting out, all hell, King Adonijah. And he's like, oh, hashtag blessed. I'm blessed to father my father. I'm blessed to follow my father. And Adonijah, is, it's, a, it's a deja coup because Absalom, his other brother, tried to do the same thing. And now it's happening with Adonijah. Look at this scripture. David, his father, had never rebuked Adonijah by asking, why do you behave as you do? Friends, can I tell you, when, when, when we surrender the responsibility of parenting our children in the way of the Lord, consequences will take place. There's, there, there's no kind of backing up on that. They'll make their own decisions, but, but we've got to leverage the opportunities we have when something isn't right, to discipline, to give grace when you need to give grace and punish when you need to punish. And David didn't. He was dysfunctional. So Adonijah conferred with Joab of Zeriah and with Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. Now pause. You guys remember Joab? Like I said, he's joker. A good joker to David. Joab's a right-hand man. But even Joab struggled with the power. He sees his lion king dying. And Joab's gonna do whatever he can to stay in power too. So he joins with whatever ticket seems to be headed to the ball. And in that moment, 30 years of faithfulness to David, he turns his back on David and chooses Adonijah. Abiathar was David's priest for 30 years. Do you know where Abiathar came from? Years ago, 30 years earlier, Saul was chasing after David and David went to a little temple and there was a man there that gave him food and gave him the sword of Goliath. And when Saul found out that that priest helped David, Saul killed that priest and 70 other of his family members. I mean, they're all walking. They got the, clear, they got the white collar and they're in nuns' outfits and everything. And just right there on the hillside, they kill. Doeg kills 70 of them. There's one guy left in the family who runs and tells David what happened. That guy is Abiathar. 30 years he's loyal to the king. I wonder if he allowed that thing to still creep up and change his loyalty. Don't let those little things in the past come back up and become weeds in your life. So Adonijah, he sacrificed sheep and cattle and fat and calves. He's looking like a king. He's looking like a godly guy. He's doing all the right stuff. He's going through all the motions. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. He's just like saying, I'm going to be king whether you like it or not, whether David puts his hand on me or not. I'm the king. Everybody followed him except he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. Nathan the prophet, the one with David and Bathsheba, Nathan wasn't invited. He comes out of retirement on this whole thing. And I want to just, as we begin to wrap up today, I want to talk to you about Nathan and Benaiah. Benaiah was one of the like ninja warriors. I'm not talking about obstacle course. I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, 
I had coffee in between service. I apologize. Um, lots of it. Benaiah, the Bible says in 2 Samuel 23, that he was so rough and tough. He was such a bad dude. He was about drive. He was about power. And, and he, he, uh, he uh, sorry, he, um, what did he do? He chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed that lion. He, he chased the lion. The lion didn't chase him. He chased the lion into a pit on a snowy day. Like, this is a bad boy. Nathan has been the voice of God for David for several decades. These guys aren't going to follow Adonijah. And so Benaiah starts to get the army, the, the, those that are loyal together that are left. And Nathan says to Benaiah, I'm going to go get an ally. I know who I need to get the ear of the king. And so Nathan leaves while Adonijah's out there doing his old worship service, fake hypocritical worship service saying, I'm the king. It's in my hands now. Nathan sneaks through the back door of the palace and he goes up to the third story, down a long hallway to a, a small bedchamber, and he knocks on the door. Inside the bedchamber, a woman sits at her makeup cabinet. She's an elderly woman. She's washing her face from a long day. You look at her and you know she's elderly, but if you look close, you also know, like, she's beautiful. She used to be a stunner. But now she's older in age. The wrinkles have taken over. And her maidservant comes to her and says, Bathsheba, there's a knock at the door. Bathsheba says, answer the door. Her maidservant comes back, a little tender and a little, trepid, a little trepidation. My lady, it's Nathan the prophet, and I wonder what goes through Bathsheba's mind. Because years earlier, it was the same prophet that said, you guys have sinned, and the baby of this affair is going to die. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even agree with it. But it's, it's the word. And I wonder if Bathsheba thought, oh, great. Last time I heard from Nathan, he told me my baby's going to die. And now he's going to tell me my oldest baby, who's now supposed to be king. Now my, now my other baby is going to die. I might as well just face what the prophet of God wants to tell me now. Let him in. Nathan comes in. And he has a different story. I want to say something to you about God and how he works, and I want you to know his word. Write it down. God's word does have the power to wound you. It does have the power to cut you and, and lay you open. It's surgical in that way. It can wound you. And I wonder if Bathsheba is only remembering the wounds of the word of God through Nathan to her. Can I say something to you? Write it down. Nobody likes being wounded. There's not a kid, no matter how loving they are, no matter great they are, no matter how good of an academic they are, nobody likes being wounded. Your kids aren't going to show up and say, I did a bad thing. Punish me. Yay. No. You don't like being wounded. You don't like being reviewed. You don't like someone saying, hey, that's, that's not right. And our defense and our hand of power wants to go in when somebody, now there's three people that'll wound you, everybody. There's three kinds of people. 
They're professional wounders that they love just to point out and nitpick and tell you everything you've done wrong. And, and they're always wounding other people. They may not even know it, but they're just, they just love to be. I mean, they are critical Candace. Okay? They are critical Cameron. And they just wounding people with their criticism. Okay, professional wounders. Pay no attention to professional wounders. But then there are inadvertent wounders. And those are people in your life, they don't even know they're wounding you. They wouldn't even think they are wounding you. And here's how they do it. You don't even know it. They don't even know it. But they're wounding you. Here's why. Because they just go along with everything you do because they're your friend and they never confront you. And somebody needs a friend that's going to say, stop posting this crap. Stop acting this way. Stop dating that same kind of person. I know, but they just, the blue eyes. Yeah! Yeah, yeah, he has, he has death tattooed right here. I know, but his eyes. Okay! Inadvertently, they will wound you because they're not honest with you. If someone's trying to honor you, but they're not honest with you, that's not honoring you. Honor and honesty go hand in hand. Honor God with your honesty with him. People will wound you inadvertently on purpose, but then there are those people, the Bible says, that are like friends, faithful friends that will wound you because they love you. They're like a surgeon with a scalpel, and they'll say, can we talk? Can we talk? There's some things I'm seeing. Would you allow me to sit with you? This is gonna hurt. It's gonna feel surgical. You may, you may wince, but there's some cancer there. But if you'll let me, I'll be the kind of friend that will help cut that out, and you're going to be better. I want to see us be faithful friends at Timber Creek. I need staff that are faithful friends to me. Just because you're the leader, you need people that with kindness and candor will give you feedback on your life. Bathsheba is getting feedback from a man that said, your baby's going to die. God's word does have the power to wound you, but I also want you to know the Bible is a double-edged sword. And one side may wound you, but God's word has the power also to heal you. And this is the moment that Bathsheba gets healing. Why isn't Bathsheba in bed with David, by the way? Why didn't one of his other seven wives in bed with, with David? Did he, did, did he just turn off all the other wives of his life? Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Doesn't even say Bathsheba, David's wife. Solomon's mother. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now, let me advise you how you and I can save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. I know we've not saw eye to eye on everything. I know I've wounded you. But now listen, if you'll follow me, your son's gonna be on the throne. God speaks to people he thinks he can change. And Bathsheba, although she was wounded, she still was changeable by the word of God. Friends, God's word may have wounded you, but if you feel like God is saying, oh, that's not right, he's not, it's not because he's mad at you, it's because he believes he can change you. He believes you can be changed. You're not too far gone. He believes there's still hope. He believes there's still an opportunity to turn things around. He, he believes in you more than you even can even comprehend believing in him. God believes in who you are. Are who you have the capacity to become in his grace and in his mercy.
God speaks to the people he thinks he can change. He's not speaking to Haggith. She's gone. She's done. Her, her, her son's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He, he's speaking to the one he knows he can change. And sure enough, Bathsheba is going to come in to David's presence. And even though he's cold and old, Bathsheba's going to say, do you remember? Do you remember Solomon? And David has enough strength mustered up, not just by himself, but by the, the, the prompting of Nathan and the prompting of Bathsheba and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in his own life. And he, he gives the directions. And Benaiah, who chased a lion through the snow, says, oh, I'm going to get him now. And sure enough, they, they bring it all back. He doesn't kill Adonijah, David, but he defeats the whole coup d'etat and do you know that we celebrate Jesus coming to earth? We don't celebrate him through the line of Adonijah. We don't celebrate him through the life of Amnon. We don't celebrate him through the life of uh, Absalom. We celebrate the line of David through Bathsheba, not the other, seven, the other seven wives. And Jesus, his family, comes from the king who should never have been born because it was an affair that never should have happened and a marriage that should, never should have taken place. Yet God will take the mess of your family. God will take the junk of your life. God will take all the things that you thought was plan A and then you went right or you went left and now all of a sudden you are sitting in the middle of plan R. Some of you are on double letters already. You're on plan double L. And God can take that and make it plan A again, write it down. Nothing can stop his will in your life. If you will surrender the hand of power to the almighty powerful one, nothing will stop his will. We've seen falling into the wrong hands. We've seen a deja coup. And sure enough, Bathsheba will sit on the front row of the coronation as Gad, the new prophet, will take, will take the crown and place it on Solomon, a man who never should have been born, to show us Jesus. Which brings us to adventure number three, a shadow of a shadow. We've been in 2 Samuel, we've been in 1 Kings, and now we go to 2 Chronicles of Narnia. No, that's not it. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Um, Solomon, as king, he began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. God, ever since the wilderness, wanted a place where his presence would dwell. And he gave David the vision for it. David had the vision of the temple. But David did not do it because of the calamity that he, that he brought on his own family. So instead, the vision was with him, but then the provision of that vision was given to Solomon. And Solomon had the blueprints, and Solomon built the temple of God where the Ark of the Covenant would rest, where every, every day a priest would sacrifice for the sins of the nation. But Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord interestingly enough, had appeared to his father David a few years earlier on the threshing floor of Arana. The threshing floor of Arana where David sacrificed was the same place that Solomon chose to build the temple 
for sacrifice. So I want to show this to you as we wrap up today. There in the landscape of Israel, a landscape that is heavily disputed and heavily fought over even to this day, even the landscape cries out to God. We see truth in the topography of God. The Bible says, if you don't cry out, rocks will cry out in your place. Creation has never sinned against God. And it cries out in majesty from every sparrow to every flower. There is a God with purpose behind it all. And here on Mount Moriah, it's important to know that um, David was born at the base of Mount Moriah in the city of Bethlehem. And when David was growing up, he would have been on the fields at the bottom of Mount Moriah, later would be named Mount Zion. In Bethlehem, he would see at night, he would see the glow of the candles from the city of Jebus that would later become the city of Jerusalem. David grew up under the shadow of Jerusalem. And David would overcome the shadow of his immaturity and the shadow of his pedigree. He would overcome all of his past and overnight he would become a Hebrew celebrity killing a giant with one rock and people would begin to say, whoa, this guy, Saul's great. Saul slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And overnight, David's leadership would overshadow the dysfunction of Saul and David would bring together a, a, a disbanded tribal group of people, 12 different tribes, he would bring them together as the nation of Israel with the capital city of Jerusalem and they would, his future would overshadow his past. But also David's sins in that same city would overshadow his successes to the point where it would bring calamity on 70,000 people by plague from the angel of the Lord. So God said, meet me up at Arana's threshing floor. And above, overlooking the city of Jerusalem was Arana's threshing floor where David would sacrifice the cattle to overshadow his sin and the sin of the people and the hand of God would lift and give grace and mercy. Wow. In that same place, the temple exists even today disputed on whose territory it is built, the temple representing sacrifices every single day by the priest to cover the sins of the people every day because it's not good enough to live on yesterday's sacrifice. You need a new sacrifice and new blood and new blood and a new animal and a new animal because you, you, that only covers a little bit. You are dirty and you're sinful and you're wrong and you ought to be condemned in your heart so every single day you better stack up good stuff and you better stack up sacrifice and you better build your position on being a good person and doing good things and handing out some stuff at Christmas and at least, you know, being a nice guy who believes in the big man upstairs, but the temple wasn't enough. It will never be enough. The sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, God was showing us that nothing you could ever sacrifice could ever be enough to truly wipe it all out for good. Would you write it down? Nothing is wasted in scripture. God doesn't say, um, uh, um, uh. His words are full of clarity for you and me. 
Because now watch. We said Mount Moriah. Go ahead, Cody. A thousand years earlier, before the temple would be built, on that same mountain where Arana's flesh threshing floor was, there's another story about a man who would be asked to do something that you and I, how, how no way, no, 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 I draw the line, God. And Abraham said, God said to Abraham, would you bring the son that you've been waiting for for years? Would you take him up this mountain? And would you, would you sacrifice him for me? God's not asking that today because that's already been covered. But it wasn't about Abraham agreeing with God. God was just asking, will you obey me? Whether you agree with me or not. And Abraham brought his son, his only son whom he loved, the Bible said. He loved him. It was not like, thank God, I get, get rid of this guy. He loved his son. But as Abraham lifted the dagger to plunge through the young flesh of that boy's chest, God said, stop, stop. In the same way he lifts his wrath with every sacrifice at the temple that Solomon built, the same way he lifted his hand of wrath of the plague from Jerusalem when David sacrificed God says, no, 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 I'm not going to lift, I'm, I'm going to lift my hand, my hand of power, I'm going to lift it, I'm not going to strike down the sheep, I'm not going to strike down your boy. And God with that same hand provides a ram in the thicket. And that is the sacrifice. At the same place David sacrificed, at the same place Solomon would build the temple, the same place the high priest. Abraham, Arana, and the temple. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later after Abraham, 1,000 years after David, there would be an even greater ascent towards the top of this same mountain. And there's a place at the top of Mount Moriah it looks interesting. Um, there's some holes in it and some caverns. It looks like a skull. And it was Golgotha. And this was where God did kill the shepherd. This is where God did spare the sheep, but he killed the shepherd, his one and only son. He did not lift his hand of wrath. In fact, his wrath poured down on his one and only son so that what Jesus did at the high place would overshadow what you could ever do and what you could ever sacrifice. That no matter what your shadow is in your life, or in your marriage, or in your, your issues, or your addiction, that the highest place 
Jesus would overshadow it all and the psalmist would say to us, he that dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty king. Even the topography speaks of a savior who is intentional with you, who loves you and sees you. And your eyes, I, I, look to the mountain, but not the mountain of your issue. Look to the mountain of your savior that overshadows everything you could ever do. So we end today with the final verdict. And I, I'm gonna say to, the, to David, will the defendant please rise? Over the last 500 some days, we've tried to make a case for David. You have heard the evidence. You've read the reports. You've, you've heard from eyewitnesses. You've, you've seen the victories. You've seen the blood. You've seen the marriages. You've seen the turmoil. You've seen the trust. You've seen the prayers and you've seen the pain. And it's time for you to choose. For every Goliath, there was a Bathsheba. And for every act of compassion, there was slaughtering. And for every spirit-led moment, he broke God's law. And yes, okay, he was a great king, but he was a dysfunctional father to say the least. And so the final verdict is in your hand and mine. And I'm asking you today to choose, to decide, do you find David guilty of being a man after God's heart. And if you had any common sense, you would say not guilty. The evidence is too deep. He messed up too many times. He did too many things. He was a terrible father. He was, he, 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 he was, uh, uh, he violated people. Just to pay for a bride, he killed 200 Philistines. He's got blood on his hands. No, he's not a man after God's heart. So if it's up to me, I'm gonna tell you, he is not guilty, he's innocent. He's not guilty of being after God. But can I say something really good to you today? It's not up to you. It's not up to you. And it's not up to your friend. And it's not up to what you wish your dad would say finally. It's not up to what you have in your past that keeps crawling up back and wants to strangle you. It's not up to all that. It's not up to the enemy. It's not up to sin. It's not up to your regrets. It's all up to God. And we don't see David's heart just by the end of his life. God is all knowing and you back up. 60 years to a wee child in a living room of the house of Jesse. And Samuel the prophet is thinking he's going to anoint the big one and the strong one and the head and shoulders over everybody else, oldest one. And God says something that you need to hang on today with. And he says, no, 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 Samuel. You're like everybody else that's got eyes. You look at the outward. I, God, Look at the heart. And God said, was he jacked up? <laughs> yeah. But he was just meant to be a shadow of what a real king looks like. 
But what about your verdict and mine? Here's the sentencing for you and I in this whole story that's led to Jesus. Lift your eyes up to the mountain where your help comes from. Abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He will be your fortress. Live there. Live there. Abide under the shadow of God. And like David said, that no matter what you go through, no matter whether you're a good sheep or a bad sheep, the Lord's my shepherd. I have everything I need. He leads me beside the still water, and he did that with David. He restored David's soul. He led David down paths of righteousness for God's name's sake. Even when he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he didn't have to fear evil because his God was with him. And God's rod and his staff comforted him. His discipline comforted him. God prepared a table for him in the presence of of his enemy. God, like a shepherd does with a sheep, he anointed his head with oil and his cup runned over. He had all he needed. And just like David, surely goodness and mercy will follow you too all the days of your life. And you can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But look to the mountain for the almighty shadow king close your eyes and pray with me today this service is meant for you if you're here and something is saying inside of you you need Jesus to be your king you simply say Jesus be my king I'm done I am done being king I am I am taking the, the, the crown off of my heart the crown off of my head you're king you're God I give it to you I don't even know what it looks like yet but I know I don't want to be working on my hand of power I'm inviting your hand of power into my life to give me a fresh start and I want you to know, friend, God is not mad at you. He loves you and he sees you. He will overshadow you and protect you. Give him everything today. If you're walking through something that's causing your eyes to look to it instead of him, Jesus, I pray that you would be enough. I pray that just because you said so, we will follow you. And that because we follow you, surely goodness and mercy will follow us because you're what it's all about. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the strong King of kings and Lord of lords. And everybody said amen.